0: Good evening, listeners. It's February 5th on a Sunday. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m. on a Sunday. That can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch.
1: And I'm Lily Pajacob. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study, and here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out, your, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
0: Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Our guest tonight is Madison Rodman, joining us from the the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. Uh, Madison, say, say hello to Corvallis. Hi, Corvallis, and hi, anyone that's listening in remotely. Yes, we are glad to have some far away uh, listeners this evening. Um, Madison, uh, tell us just a little bit about your project, first of all, with uh, who you are working for and how far along in your program you are.
2: Great. Thank you, Kristen. So I am a master's student at in the Department of Bl- uh, Botany and Plant Pathology, like Kristen said, and I am almost finished with my degree. So I have defended my thesis successfully, and I'm just come kind of working on some Some edits and uh, hopefully I'll be out um, in a couple of weeks. And my project, um, so I work with Dr. Peter McAvoy and the broad scope of my project was to understand the ecological risk of an introduced biological control agent, the cinnabar moth, um, on a native plant up in the high Oregon Cascades and the coast range, Senecio triangularis. Very
0: cool. And so uh, we'll get back to that in a few minutes. But first, I want to know, really, how did you get involved in science and what was your first project?
2: Yeah. So um, I've kind of always been a science kid at heart. Uh, I grew up in central North Dakota, um, just outside of Bismarck. And uh, science was in my everyday life growing up. And um, after completing my high school work in North Dakota, I went to the big city of Minneapolis uh, to... (laughs) to go to school at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Um, and there I kind of studied uh, in the College of Biological Sciences, a lot of different things. But I ended up with a degree uh, in plant biology. And that kind of came
1: about in a circuitous way. Right. So um, your family, actually, though, you grew up in uh, surrounded by scientists. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah. So my dad um, just retired uh, from a long career working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then my mom um, was the director of the crime lab in North Dakota. So uh, we had forensic science and ecology, um, full household.
1: (laughs) Awesome. So um, you mentioned that your undergrad degree was in um, plant biology. Now, what made you sort of select that specifically?
2: Yeah, great, great question. So as a biologist, you're most one of your most important questions is picking your study organism, and so as an undergraduate, I kind of did the prerequisite courses and general um, biology, chemistry, physics, uh, math, and you know still hadn't really seen anything that I wanted to work on, and I had the opportunity to um, take a. Uh, undergraduate study abroad experience that was tied in with scientific research so I kind of hopped on a uh, research experience in where I went to um, western Thailand kind of in the jungles and I, I spent a couple weeks trekking around trying to put um, collars remote sensing collars on tigers um, in the <laughs> jungle and it was super fun uh, three weeks later I still hadn't seen a tiger um, and <laughs> But while you're hiking in the in these jungles, you know, what you do see, even when you, there are no large carnivores around, um, all of the wonderful um, flora of Western Thailand. And I kept saying, hmm, why aren't we studying things that are easy to find and count rather than <laughs> something that you have to kind of bait and chase down? Uh, and, you know, I can't return to Minneapolis. Um, you know, I, I think... I left Bangkok and it was 100 degrees and I got back to Minneapolis and it was negative (laughs) 10 and, you know, deposited back into winter and thought to myself, hmm, plants aren't such a bad study organism after all. (laughs) Um, And kind of from there, I uh, sought out some research projects uh, relating
1: to plants, something that doesn't run away when you study it. So in addition to your research, um, during that study abroad session, you actually did some teaching as well. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, at the end of my time
2: at the university of Minnesota, I had done some research projects, um, kind of on plants. And then I had the opportunity to be an undergraduate TA. Um, and so as a, at a student, as a, um, at a big institution, they don't have enough graduate students sometimes to teach all of the courses. And so I got to be um, a, the primary lab instructor for two undergraduate biology sections. So um, even as a, a senior undergraduate, I could teach my peers biology. And I realized that kind of through teaching, you gain a deeper appreciation of um, the, the science itself, and you um, get to watch other people be excited about the material as well. So that was a really exciting opportunity too. in in addition to research.
0: So uh, how did you... Let's go back to a little bit of the research that you were doing at the same time teaching and, like, having been a (laughs) globetrotter. So not the basketball team, like, actually traveling. But... um, what what was the first research project that you did that focused on plants? Yeah, so I was um, lucky to um,
2: join in a lab first as an employee in the Department of Horticulture, um, Dr. Alan Smith's lab. And first, I did the kind of standard things that undergraduates do in in a lab. Uh, I washed dishes, I watered plants in the greenhouse, um, and I kind of put my time in at the at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, and then I had the opportunity to do an undergraduate research project in the same lab where. We, we were studying kind of the molecular level of pollination. So after plants um, are pollinated and before kind of the seeds develop, the lab that I was working in was trying to understand kind of the, the proteins that are necessary to make that pollination from pollen into the developing seed kind of work. So I went and did this molecular project focusing on lots of different species of tobacco and trying to understand um, how pollination works at a molecular level.
1: So is this um, the point at which you are doing the um, REU, or is this the UROP? Can you sort of differentiate between those? Yeah, so I had the opportunity to do two big kind of undergraduate
2: research projects. The first, the one that I just described, was um, at the University of Minnesota, we call them UROPS. So (laughs) Undergraduate Research Opportunity Programs, so you apply for a small grant, and you get to – kind of pays for you to do the research and maybe pays for a little bit of supplies. I think it's similar to undergraduate experiences that we have here at Oregon State. Okay
0: Excellent. and so then the REU what came later? Yeah so that's a little
2: bit something different so it allowed um, that was at the towards the end of my time at the University of Minnesota. I The REU is a more kind of intensive uh, program that you do over the summer usually and it's 40 hours a week and that's Sponsored through the National Science Foundation, so the REU is a research experience for undergraduates, and they're in offered in a variety of different fields. Um, mine was in um, biology, and I got to travel to Northern Michigan, um, where I worked um, at the University of Michigan Biological Station for a summer, and so I got to have a summer, um, in kind of within the grad kind of as a grad student experience as an undergrad. So I got to have a full project and take it from beginning to end there in northern Michigan.
1: You think do you think that was a good preparation for
2: graduate school? Yeah, indeed. I think that the REUs are one of the kind of most telling experiences they can have an undergraduate can have before graduate school. And I think that's kind of the whole the whole point of these NSF programs are to for to encourage a broader um group of undergraduates to explore, um, graduate programs in the sciences and kind of a chance to get your feet wet, um, with a, a graduate school like experience before you're actually in grad school. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense.
0: So what about that project, uh, influenced kind of your shift from biology, maybe pollination biology into what you do now, which is more of plant insect
2: interactions. Great question. So, um, In the Department of Horticulture, I was working in a kind of wet lab setting where I couldn't really, we were working in the greenhouse, but then once we took the plant samples back into the lab, you couldn't really see what you were doing. It was um, at the gene level, kind of at the DNA level, and you can't really see that. And I was interested in um, kind of whole organism um, study and knowing kind of as at the end of my degree at, at Minnesota, I understood that science and biology, um, the study of life doesn't just happen with one organism. It's the interactions of many organisms together that kind of define the world we live in. So I, want, I was looking for a project that allowed me to have kind of multiple levels um, in like a food web, which for plants, the next thing up would be either that's something that eats them, um, like a vertebrate or an invertebrate. And um, that led me to plants and insects. And this project that um, was proposed in Michigan um, had this Uh, tie between plants and insects and climate change. And it sounded like a cool project to explore for a summer. And it was fun to do all that background research and kind of doing that project, going through the motions made me realize, hey, there's something here um, in the study between plants and insects. And um, there's lots of opportunities, um, people researching that across the country too.
1: One thing that I'm really interested in was you mentioned climate change. So how was what you were doing How was that related to maybe um, developing a a model for climate change and getting a better idea of what's going on?
2: Yeah. So the REU that I did um, in at the University of Michigan Biological Station, all we had there were 10 undergraduates that did REUs that summer. And the whole theme of the REU program was um, kind of understanding science in our changing world. So kind of global change um, and so then my project was Global Change and in Plants-Insects Interactions. Um, and as we know, uh, the atmosphere is changing. It, The carbon dioxide levels are increasing every day. And so my project was aimed to understand how those increasing CO2 levels, carbon dioxide, um, impacts plants. And so if you think back to your um, basic biology lectures... <clears throat> You remember that plants need a few things, right? One of them being CO2. And so when you have this increase in CO2, how does that affect plants? Um, That's one thing. But then I was interested in how does that change affect insects as well? And so uh, we were growing plants in different CO2 chambers. um, And I was interested in kind of understanding what the plants experience and how that changes their um, chemical compounds that they make and how that could uh, influence something that ate them. So in this case, a caterpillar, how eating plants with different kind of levels of chemistry affects herbivores
0: hmm. cool so you had like the perfect undergraduate trifecta like plants insects and climate change did yes. this lead to a conference presentation for you um, so it,
2: it didn't lead to a uh, a full conference, but I got to present the work at the University of Michigan Biological Station that summer um, in a poster and a oral talk. And then I wrote it up for my University of Minnesota honors thesis and presented it there at the undergraduate kind of research symposium um, and gave a talk at the University of Minnesota. So there were multiple um, different levels of um, presentation, but I didn't do the, the big Big shebang conference with that one.
0: Well, that still sounds like a lot of great practice. Yeah, Yeah, it was a lot of fun,
2: and um, it's nice to have a little bit of a kind of conclusion for your projects that you do.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And you have a little bit more experience uh, interpreting science for people, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your national park experience? Yeah, so
2: uh, sounds like I did a million things, but I feel like I did <laughs> do a million things when I was an undergrad. Uh, you, you did, know, very busy lady. I was very busy, and um, it goes to show that you never know which experiences are gonna be the ones that are most meaningful. Um, and so this was before I went to Thailand, before I did those research experiences, I spent a summer as an intern with the National Park Service at Wind Cave National Park, which is in Western South Dakota, a little-known national park, but actually one of the first that was established in the united states and there at wind cave um i got the the opportunity to kind of take on the role as park ranger and um lead park uh, park visitors on both above ground and below ground um park uh tours so wind cave is at that time was home to the fourth longest cave in the world so it's 130 something miles long with new um lengths being discovered every day. So I took, I took tours, uh, led tours of, um, different parts of the cave and did, um, tours about the geology and how that cave, cave formed and some of the, the native American history that was related to the cave along with, um, kind of the, the general park ranger stuff too at the surface. Um, so South Dakota, um, and wind cave national park has a large population of American bison, so I I got to drive around in my park service minivan telling people not to touch the bison. (laughs) Get away from that bison. Do do not put your toddler on that bison, please.
0: (laughs) Nice. Okay, so um, anyway, now that we know a bit about your background, maybe we should, again, just to remind the listeners, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination, and we're talking to Madison Rodman from Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. And so let's hear a little bit more uh, in depth about what you do here at Oregon State. Yeah. So I've been at Oregon
2: State now for almost um, a little over two and a half years. And I came in the summer of 2014 to do my master's um, in the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. And our department's pretty diverse. Um, We study things ranging from paleobotany to um, true plant pathology, diagnosing um, diseases. But my research kind of falls into... Um, the work that would be broadly classified as plant ecology. So I came to kind of get my master's in in plant ecology in plant-insect interactions, um, working with Dr. Peter McAvoy. And our lab has this broad history of studying the biological control agent, the cinnabar moth, which was released um, to Oregon in the 1960s to control an invasive weed, tansy ragwort. So if you're driving around Oregon in... Um, early summer, you probably will see this weed along roadsides. Um, it has yellow flowers. And so um, biological control is one way we can control invasive weeds. And I came in not to study the invasive weed portion of this um, system that we work on, but to kind of c- study a unintended consequence, if you will, of the release of this biological control agent in Oregon. Um, and that was um, this... Cinnabar moth. The caterpillars, instead of eating this thing that it was supposed to eat, tansy ragwort. Um, in certain places in the state, the caterpillar began eating uh, a new plant, senecio triangularis, or arrowleaf groundsel.
0: And so, the arrowleaf groundsel is this an easy mix-up? Like, if I'm a caterpillar and I see something, if I see this arrow leaf groundsel, am I thinking that I'm on the plant that I love?
2: So, tansy ragwort and the cinnabar moth—they um, are from kind of same place they're both from or um western europe and and european origins and so the the weed came first then the insect and um this new plant arrow groundsel, the caterpillar hadn't really seen it before um but it's maybe you could say it has similar it's 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 like the um weed that it it should be eating so it kind of looks like it has maybe if you think of um like the family tree of plants, they're very closely related on that family tree, even though they're from different continents. And they kind of have the same um, chemistry that the caterpillars need. So the same kind of, it tastes the same to the caterpillar, perhaps.
0: Okay, I see. Um, so what did you end up finding out about this, uh, the effect of these caterpillars on the a
2: native plant yeah so um i did a variety of different things so i did a experiment like like scientists do when you're trying to understand what the impact is and then i also took a lot of observational data so i walked um beautiful hiking trails up in the high cascades and looking for this interaction um, and together this experiment and all this observational data revealed that um in certain situations and um the certain timings of this interaction um, could be detrimental to the plant's growth and perhaps reproduction, um, depending on the timing. Um, And it's seen, this interaction is seen in widespread across Western Oregon. So you can find it from Mount Hood all the way down into the kind of the umpqua regions, and you can find it in both the coast and cascade ranges. So it's widespread. Um, There are potentials to impact uh, growth and reproduction, But this plant is a perennial plant, so something, um, if you have a plant in your yard that comes back year after year, um, that's what this plant that I was studying does. So that ability for the plant to come back and regenerate every summer probably is helping it um, to survive this, this munching from this hungry, hungry caterpillar.
0: Yeah. So it just kind of like goes underground maybe after, if it gets eaten really terribly one year, it's still alive, but underground and then it can come back the next year with little or no consequence. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little bit reduction in,
2: in the plant's height. And that's what we found that plants were shorter, that, that had higher levels of kind of munching by the caterpillar were smaller, but just similarly, like if you have a, a daisy in your yard and you accidentally, mowed over it with your lawnmower, uh, the daisy will probably come back and be just fine the next year. Um, especially if
0: <laughs> unfortunately you, <yeah. laughs> for these weedy things. Okay. But Senecio, like we said, is not a weed.
1: Um, so one thing is that your work currently also ties into a climate change effect also. Is that true? Yeah.
2: Um, so We should, um, as scientists, we need to be aware of kind of what the potential for things to change. So we understand that our world is changing and um, nothing that we do should be considered kind of um, not regarding climate change. And so uh, some I had a natural experiment kind of in my project that allowed me to understand kind of climate interactions um, with these two species. So. My big experiment that I conducted was done during the summer of 2015, and if you remember that summer um, here in Oregon, uh, first you might think that winter, um, the winter was no snow. So snow in the Oregon Cascades was the lowest that it's been um, since records began um, 35 years ago. So we had very little snowpack during that winter, and then summer was followed by um, one of the hottest, driest summers on record. And so I was doing that experiment up in the mountains during that hot, dry summer, which allowed me to kind of make predictions um, based on like what could be could happen in the future because this hot dry summer that we saw is going to be more like normal um, in the future in the Oregon Cascades. So uh, p- there's the potential for things to be a lot worse depending on when these um, caterpillars eat these plants. And so if there's if there's um, ability to change when. The caterpillar munching will happen if it occurs earlier in the year. It could be more detrimental for the plants and that kind of all times in with climate change, snow melt, snowpack, moisture, that kind of thing.
0: Right. So early in the year, I'm thinking if we have a really uh, short winter then spring is going to come earlier. So the plants are going to be popping up earlier. So maybe there's something for these caterpillars to eat earlier. So I guess the interaction there yeah. is really what you were seeing.
2: Yeah. So the interactions, kind of where um, that change could be. So um, if the caterpillars have the ability to um, co- come out earlier and, and feed on the, the plants flowers before they're blooming, that could be um, pretty detrimental because as we, as you know, that plants, Um, they reproduce from seeds. And if there are no seeds to um, kind of distribute into the world, then there's probably not much reproduction happening. And um, uh, a species survival ultimately determined, depends on how many individuals it can procreate or reproduce. So yeah, if the caterpillars come out early enough and eat the plants before they're flowering, um, that could be, it could be bad for the species.
1: Mm. So one thing is that, um, What you discover in your research now, can this be, who will ultimately be looking at this? Is this like the federal government or the state government? Like who will ultimately be using this research most?
2: Yeah, so um, something we haven't really talked about um, is biological control in general um, kind of is governed by um, multiple different levels. And it's important that when we introduce something to um, control an invasive weed that we document all of the both costs and benefits and so um, this organism was released a long time ago but it's still important that we um, tally up all of the um, negative impacts that it could have and this could help um, future uh, management decisions for biological control and um, future testing so when people are trying to determine um, what's safe to introduce they can kind of come back to my um, research and say what did we do wrong that time that there was this feeding on a, on a plant that it wasn't supposed to be feeding on? And that can, um once you build some general theory, that can help you understand um, what's safe for the future.
0: So it kind of provides like a precedent and context for these other related studies or studies that are interested in biological control.
2: Exactly. And, and there are um, some pretty well-known examples of when um, a biological control agent kind of Attack something that it's not supposed to, um, and they're and they're pretty severe. But it's good to always quantify things that um, may not be as bad, but still um, attacking something that it shouldn't. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, um, and then so I guess uh, what what comes next, Madison? Now that you are master, Madison Rodman. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's listening um, and would like to hire me. <laughs> I'm here. If we can have the phone lines ringing
2: off the hook, um, she will take all questions <laughs> and jobs. I will. <laughs> um, so I'm. I will be moving soon to northern Minnesota, kind of back um to what feels like home and i'm going to be looking for either a career in kind of science outreach science education um kind of science communication at multiple different levels so it can be pretty informal um either working for like a nonprofit or in a formalized um teaching role at a at a university as an instructor or something but definitely something that combines you know this this love of teaching other people about science with um Understanding science kind of from the inside out as someone who's done research and kind of see what kind of jobs um, want someone to understand science, but also maybe tell some um, people that don't know science from the inside out, kind of tell them the joys of science and things they should know about the world around them. And you got some uh, teaching experience while you were here at Oregon State as well. Is that right? Yeah. So I had the opportunity to be a graduate teaching assistant for, um, three different classes. Um, so introductory biology. So if I have any of my students that are out there listening and um, biology 211, along with plant structure and, um, plant ecology. And then I completed a graduate certificate in college and university teaching, um, as graduate students know it as the G cup program. And that's an additional kind of like 18 credit program that gives um, people interested in teaching or kind of facilitation skills, the ability to dive deeper into, um, teaching as a science and how to improve your teaching and your presentation skills. Um, And it was a great um, thing to add on to um, my pure scientific education. So I got to do both science and then teaching and meeting lots of graduate students across the university and lots of different
1: fields um, to do that graduate teaching program as well. Awesome. Um, So one of the things we do here on the show is um, we want to hear if you have any advice for Potential um, undergrad students who are listening, who are thinking about graduate school, or high school students um, and other graduate students. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So,
2: a couple things. First, as an undergraduate, if you're listening, um, don't be afraid to get involved with research, um, even as a volunteer or um, an intern, or or just checking something out that sounds interesting to you, following up on, maybe you had a professor that came in and gave a, a guest lecture and sounded really cool in one of your classes. Um, don't be afraid to reach out and um, get involved with their their group because you never know it could be something that um, changes your life forever. And um, like you kind of heard here, I did a bunch of different things and it's okay if you are involved with the lab for a year or so and then try a different lab or try a different group. And so as an undergrad, feel do a lot of different things to see what you like. Um, and then as a graduate student, if you're kind of, or someone that's thinking about graduate school, um, thinking hard about uh, your choice in program. So there are lots of different options. And kind of as undergrads, we think, oh, the only next step is a PhD, right? I get my bachelor's degree and then the PhD is next. Um, and master's degrees are, are really um, useful tools as well. So thinking um, maybe I want a master's and then a PhD, or just a master's, and, and even in the kind of master's subset, you can do a research-based master's, like we were talking about with mine, um, or you could do a master's that just kind of are course, course-based. Um, but the the thinking hard about the difference between a master's and a PhD, um, and and what what that will do for you and your kind of career path.
0: Yep, a lot of good foresight there. And would you say? also for the undergraduate comment before that, even if you don't like whatever experience you go for, it's still important or any experience that you tried, it's still important to understand what you don't want to do as much as what you do want to do.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you can kind of cross things off your list and say, Oh, maybe I don't want to be a large animal tiger researcher (laughs) check. I don't have to do that one again. Right. Like (laughs) it's still cool. And, um, especially you never know what you're going to learn from a job and um, maybe it's going to all it if you all it is is washing dishes you know that you gain some tenacity in that too right <laughs> um, and I think that um, learning what you don't want to do is just as important as learning what you do want to do
0: definitely very cool and then our, our last thing I is to to ask for you to provide us a song and uh, what that song is and what it means to you. Yeah, so the song I picked out
2: to to kind of end me off here is uh, this song 1612 by Wolf Peck. And uh, so this band is a kind of a funky band based out of California um, that I discovered while I was in grad school and had the opportunity to see them up in Portland. Um, and it's just kind of a, a fun band that the grad students that I'm friends with... Um, I think have discovered along with me and it's always puts a smile to your face when even when you're in the lab late at night or working on your statistics homework or driving up into the mountains to catch some caterpillars. Um, So 1612 by
0: Wolfpack. All right so here it is to remind the listeners you've been listening to Inspiration Dissemination and we are on every Sunday at 7 p.m. and we were just talking to Madison Rodman. So Madison again. Thank you very much for thank coming you. to talk to us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And here it is, sixteen twelve by Peck You heard it on Inspiration Dissemination, KBVR Corvallis.